subject, we're delving into the tiny world of insects. We've got ants, we've got bees, we've got flies, we've got a whole range of different insects coming up right here on Fuzzy Logic. Morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, right here on Two X Community Radio in Canberra. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning as we delve into the world of science. Joining me in the studio today for Fuzzy is Andy. Good morning, Andy. How's it going, Broderick? Oh, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. Uh, a very sciencey week for you. Uh, not really. My, I, I'm, I'm sad that my work doesn't really take me too close to the sciences these days. A bit of conservation science and things like that. But no, I, I, I went searching for science stories this week to, to present on Fuzzy. And, and ah. it was very fun to find some things on the current theme of insects this week. That's right. Well, yeah, we, I decided we might explore the world of insects. And the reason that actually came about for me was uh, reading about a, a new insect that's just been reported in uh, in a journal uh, this week called Zoo Keys. And it's a new insect which has been called an exploding ant in uh, in media reports. And look, exploding is a bit of an exaggeration here. It's a strong term that not always applies. <laughs> That's right. You, you'd almost think that uh, you've got ants just blasting off here and there. It's, it's not quite right, but it is a very interesting insect. Um and look, it does have exploding in its uh, species name. It's called Colobopsis explodens. Um, <laughs> but what this uh, this species actually does is uh, is something a bit different. It's a bit more of a, a kamikaze-like ant uh, that's trying to protect its uh, own group uh, in its defence mechanism. Now, the way it works is uh, when these ants are confronted by an enemy insect, uh, they latch onto their foe and tear open their own body wall to release a yellow toxic goo onto their rival to either slow down or kill it. So, you know, quite a... uh uh, an interesting way to defend themselves, and obviously they're not defending themselves against this, but defending the whole ant colony, uh, because it's a, it's a, an interesting one that ants, uh, as a species, are quite uh, a uh, social species. They're all about looking after each other, and so that's what's going on here. Is this uh, this ant is trying to look after the rest of its tribe uh, as it slowly leaks out this goo. That's right, and and. People back home, if you're thinking about animals and like what's the best adaptation you can have, the best adaptation that any animal can have is being able to work with other animals and being able to work in a group. And the best animals that can do that are usually great social insects. So you're thinking ants, bees, wasps and things like that. And they have some amazing defences and sometimes their whole bodies will evolve just to defend their colonies. And we see that they'll do that amazing rip open their abdomen, throw goo on kind of suicidal attack that other species do. We have honeybees who will do that with their sting. But the same species of ant also has the amazing ability to kind of wall off their, um, their, 
their their nest nests for ants, not hive. Um, and so they have a different group of not work, of workers that are a lot bigger that have a really big head that kind of has a flat plate on their where their jaws are, and they can block off the entrance to their to their nest just with that flat plate. That's right, to protect everyone from defending in there. Indeed, it's, it's kind of like a, a body, I guess. In, the, in our body, we have different cells that perform different functions. And these ants, yeah, differentiate within the species. Uh, they're polymorphic, so they come in a range of different shapes and sizes. Um, and so in this case, yeah, some of them can protect with the head, others rip themselves open, but each one of them playing a role to protect that whole colony of ants, which is kind of like the body as a whole, um, to keep those ants going. Uh, what's interesting is, um, and I'm looking at an ABC article that did a nice write-up of this, is that uh, this isn't the only ant species to develop this kind of block, um, block uh, nest adaptation so the exploding answer that's pretty cool and new and and it's really interesting but they also have that block adaptation with their face but other australian ants also do the same there's a mangrove species of ant that uh often their area gets flooded just by high tide so with their faces and some of the workers will just block off the entrance to the hive and uh to the nest i keep saying hive not nest <laughs> getting confused with bees they're very similar spe- uh very similar uh, group of uh, insects. Um, yeah. Coleoptera, is that it? Um, anyway, so they they block it off as well. So this is two different parts of the world where these ants have developed the same kind of technique for defense against their nests. Um, and they, they're not as related to each other, so it's kind of a convergent evolution, which is really cool. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense that, hey, um, well, there's, there's got to be a way to, to block off your hive um, from uh, from things that are going on, block off your, your nest and um, the ants plugging it with their head. I mean, it seems like a strange way to keep the animals out, but it, it seems to work for them. Um, you know, keep enemies out, keep water out. Uh, there's another species over in the US that uh, drops stones into the entrance of a more dominant ant species uh, to trap them inside <laughs> their own nest, <laughs> um, which is a different way of looking at it again. They're, and they're not the only ones within Australia that have uh, their defence mechanisms too. There's a group uh, up, uh, found uh, more in the northern areas of Australia called the trapjaw ants. And uh, they have a pair of long, straight uh, mandibles. They're jaws that are held open uh, until something triggers them. They've got tiny trigger hairs to kind of cause this reaction. And then the jaw snaps shut. And it snaps shut so fast, they actually have the fastest moving body part of any animal in the world. Uh, so you can imagine that these must be moving at pretty high speed, these jaws. And it's really good for capturing prey, so they can obviously trap them in there. But it's also been documented that if they're threatened by a species that's larger than that, they can actually snap their jaw against the ground, which uh, propels them to flip away from uh, the the. Uh, predator there so they're essentially back flipping away uh from something that's threatening them yeah listeners at home if you ever get a chance to see this video you can just kind of search for trapdoor ants online you can see some amazing high speed slow motion video and it looks really graceful ants have like six six limbs going everywhere but they look very graceful as they're flipping backwards away you think gymnasts look good no no, no they got nothing on these ants <laughs> and they're doing these amazing really high backflips and they're just landing and kind of 
wandering off as though nothing really happened. Yeah, it, it must be a bit shocking too to the predators who are there. Like, you know, you've got <laughs> ant in your sight and then suddenly snap. And I'd assume it would be a bit of a noise associated yeah. with it too. Generally things moving that fast make a noise. Just snap, bam, the ant's gone. I like to think a whole group of them would be like the movie Mousetrap where they have all the mousetraps laid out and then a predator kind of falls on them and all of a sudden there's these flipping ants everywhere just freaking out. Just, well, the other way, I, I'd like to see it uh, do. I'd wonder if the predators eventually evolved to, to have like a double-pronged attack. So one comes in to scare the ant, it flips away, and then the other one just jumps in the air and grabs it. Something like that. Who knows what could happen? <laughs> <laughs> but there are really interesting uh evolutions that ants have to protect themselves one other interesting one is the leaf cutter ant who uh, have to contend with parasitic flies uh, these flies often lay their eggs on the ant heads um, so eggs on ant head and then when the eggs hatch uh, the larvae have a food source straight away in the ant's head uh, and so they start burrowing into the ant head and eat it from the inside out uh, so the ants need to protect themselves from this fly and, and these uh, leaf cutter ants have a bodyguard when they come out. And that bodyguard is basically a tiny worker ant that sits um, on the leaf above and they're there to shoo away any flies that may come and uh, lay their eggs on the head of the larger ants. So they have their sort of sacrificial bodyguard ants, which are actually smaller than the big ants, um, but, uh, but they're there to help protect them. It's amazing, these little defences. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, it's right. You know, they're little creatures, ants. Um, you know, they do vary quite a bit in size, but they've got all these amazing things going on to help protect them uh, and help them keep going in the world around them, ranging from their heads. Yeah. To and this is at home probably why would these ants do this? Why would they sacrifice themselves to to just look after the, 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 the hive or colony or, or nest? And, and that's because... They're still all related. Remember, they all have the same queen. So genetically, they're all very similar. And there's this idea in, in social, um, social ecology or social evolution that you try and look after similar genes to your own. So all these ants are very, very related. So if they sacrifice themselves to save the, co- the hive or the colony, they're saving their own genes and, assure- and ensuring that they can go on so they can keep living. So the sacrifice is deemed worth it. And it works with humans as well. So... Humans are more likely to save their brothers and sisters than maybe someone who's a really, really, really distant relative. You, you instinctually feel that because the maths is already done. So these social creatures do these amazing things and ants just do it on an amazing large scale. Yeah, and it, it, it's kind of strange when you think about it to be built into them, that, that style of thinking. And we might explore a little bit later on what, uh, what level of thinking insects actually have. But uh, going from the... Uh, Ants opening up their stomach uh, to kind of save themselves and put this ooze out on their uh, their uh, predators to, to save the, sp- the colony. Uh, you were sharing with me earlier about a, a similar experience with an insect that does a similar thing. Yeah, so Andy. when I lived in, in the Seychelles, I was, I was there on, a, on some reef conservation work and it was so hot that you never really wanted to sleep with kind of bedding. You'd always just kind of sleep in shorts and on a bed and you just deal with like any mosquitoes or things like that but Seychelles also had blister beetles and there's these bright orange slightly less than a centimeter long beetles that would kind of just be everywhere and you kind of got used to them being around but they were blister beetles because when they get scared they would kind of they'd secrete a toxin and I'm going to butcher the Latin here I'm sorry listeners (laughs) uh cantharidin that would cause a blister on your skin 
So when you're sleeping in bed and you're just shirtless and you roll over onto one of these beetles, all of a sudden you have just blisters all over your back. And so often I would just have blisters all over my arms and back just because of these blister beetles just always creeping into my bed. I didn't have bed bugs. I had bed beetles, I think is what you'd say. <laughs> yeah, either way, it doesn't sound pleasant. No, it wasn't pleasant, but it was, it was something you got used to. And these, these beetles would show up everywhere. I remember being on a dive and I was like 20 meters down and I, I'd opened up my, my pocket in, my, in my, my jacket in my diving and a blister beetle just kind of came out and floated up to the top and it was still swimming and fine. And I'd been down for like 40 minutes, completely flooded. And this beetle was just like, yeah, I'm cool. And just kind of wandered off. <laughs> these beetles are amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. And you can see some really brightly colored ones. They're kind of found all over the world, but in Seychelles, they had this bright orange. But if you get online, listeners, and look up blister beetles, you can see some amazingly colored beetles there. Wonderful. Crazy, crazy things. Well, we're going to continue to explore the world of insects uh, today as we do go through it on Fuzzy Logic. But let's have a little bit of music now. And that was Brother B, uh, All My Life by Brother B. You're listening to People Powered Radio, 2XACT, and that's on the 98.3 dial. Um, and you've joined us in an amazing time. We're talking all things science on Fuzzy Logic, and today we're talking insects. And the next insect story we have coming from Broad. Uh, what have you got for us, Broad? Well, we were talking before about uh, the ants protecting themselves and you were talking about the blister beetles protecting themselves. And I wondered how much did those blisters hurt when you were rubbing yourself up <laughs> you were blistering up in the middle of the night? I slept through them, so I don't think they were that bad. Okay, okay. Um, but... I'm sure there are some... I've, I've been stung by wasps before and they really shocked me as a kid and, and bees, obviously, and ants that just bite you and continuously don't stop biting you because you set up your picnic at a bull ant nest and that was a silly choice, but you didn't notice they were there and it's ruined the picnic. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, it's an interesting one, the the biting, you know, how to compare how much one bite hurts to another. I've been stung by bees a few times uh, and uh, I've now found out that I am allergic to them. So <laughs> slowly, it's been a slowly increasing thing of swelling up more and more with each bee sting. Um, but uh, I then got stung by a wasp more recently and I think that one was interesting because it was multiple stings rather than just the one. Um, but the, to put it all on a scale is really hard to do because it's hard to kind of classify pain. But there is a scientist who has done this. His name's Justin Schmidt. He's an entomologist from over in the US. And he put together the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. It's a scale from zero to four that shows how much an insect sting actually hurts. Now, how do you... Uh, classify this scale well you kind of have to get stung and that's what he's done he's been stung uh, by thousands of different insects from 80 insect groups and then brought in colleagues as well to come and join in to to contribute to this scale and it's kind of amazing uh, the the lengths they'll go to to classify this i i don't know why but you know i suppose once you get started you just don't want to stop i mean scientists are nothing but perfectionists they have to collect them all i guess well indeed indeed and so you know they've collected a range of different uh, stings to get you know level one two three and four uh, and I'd, I'd like to give you some of the ideas of the scale that we have here. So level one on the Schmidt scale uh, is a something that's a, a light, ephemeral, almost fruity 
uh, type of pain. It sounds like he's describing a wine. I, it is a strange description. I've never heard pain described as fruity, but I suppose when you get stung enough times, it's got to got to describe it somehow. A refined palate. Yeah, it's kind of like a tiny spark has singed a single hair on your arm. So level one on the Schmidt sting scale is not too bad. Then you go up to level two. Now level two is. Uh, described as, you know, maybe the oven mitt had a hole in it when you pulled the cookies out the oven. Uh, so I, I felt that plenty of times. You go to yeah. grab the metal tray and it's like, oh, that is quite hot. Mm. Um, so, you know, and especially I'm assuming you let go. You don't just hang on with the oven mitt. So, you know, that's, that's a bit of a pain uh, and probably some throbbing afterwards too. Level three gets up to something that's uh, bold and unrelenting. Uh, Imagine someone using a power drill to excavate your ingrown toenail. (laughs) Now I'm starting to cringe. Uh, This is uh, getting a bit further as we go. This is getting less scientific and more just like he's just doing it for the fun fun descriptions as well. Well, I I appreciate them. I really do. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting description. As we get on to level four, though, level four gets crazy. This is blinding, fierce, shockingly electric, like a running hairdryer has just been dropped into your bubble bath um i i don't know how he's got this comparison yeah you, if you think about it he would have had to have also experienced those other things to be able to make this this fair comparison so does that mean that he was having a bubble bath it's like i need to test it what's this like someone throw this it on me I mean, yeah because it's not a good uh thing i don't think people often survive the hairdryer in the bubble bath situation but um, he's he scientifically came about it so i assume he, that he's tested himself he, he must he must i don't have that information <laughs> uh as to how he has done it but the the thing we do have on the scale here is some australian insects so we might be able to compare it ourselves as to what you've been stung by or i've been stung by uh, or what you've been stung by listeners in here um, because it is interesting you know the greater defense that these insects have because that's all stings are really they're just defenses that they have against uh, predators and in some cases we become the predator uh, although we don't intend to be we just set up our picnic in the wrong spot or happen to wander through the honeybee territory and, and they're just protecting themselves or just walk outside of my house and there's wasps there and I didn't know I apologize wasp who set up outside of my house and... oh dear yeah. well, actually the last time I found a wasp this was as I was moving out of my existing place. So I thought, well, this is a good time to leave. <laughs> There's the wasp nest. Uh, well, let's look. We're going to start down the low end of the, uh, the insect scale here. And uh, with a rating of, of 0.1 on uh, Schmidt's pain index uh, is the uh, typical house ant. Um, you know, this, the, the black ant that you tend to find uh, indoors, uh, you know, leaves scraps of food lying about. Um, and they they occasionally do bite you. I reckon, I remember these as a kid. Yeah, it's just more annoying. Just like, oh, just go away. Stop, stop this. That's yeah. right. Just a slight itchiness there. Yeah. So zero point one on the scale. You're pretty good. Uh, the next one that comes along though is the meat ant. Um, these are slightly different ants. A little bit bigger. Um, so cool because they enjoy feasting on meat. Uh, and uh, they normally eat caterpillars, butterflies, cane toads, and the occasionally misplaced human foot. Uh, this one comes in at 0.5 on the scale, so still not too bad. Uh, they can't actually sting you as such, but if you get bitten by a meat ant, it can be quite irritating. Uh, and uh, so, you know, fairly tame in comparison to other ants, such as stinging ants. 
um, but the bite isn't too bad. Uh, so from 0 0.5 on the scale, we then take a jump up to 1.2 into fire ants. Oh. Yeah, fire ants uh, found around southeast Queensland since 2001, uh, and they're basically a, a stinging ant. Um, they've been described as having a sharp, sudden, mildly alarming sting, uh, like uh, walking across a shag carpet and reaching for the light switch, which I don't quite understand, unless we're talking about a, a, a static electric shock. But even there. then, they're not that... Bad static. I, I remember using my school shoes to try and bully my my, my schoolmates. So like rub my feet as much as I could on the carpet and then zap them, and you kind of forget about it pretty quickly. So it sounds like the fire ants aren't too, too bad. bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're only a one point two, and yeah. one was pretty low on the scale. Uh, but then we jump up to to two on the scale, and something that I feel like most uh, people have probably been stung by is the honeybee. Yeah. Uh, so there are two on the scale. Um, and uh, the sting can leave you with, uh, you know, something a bit stronger, uh, a match head flipping off and burning on your skin, you know, that sort of burning sensation in there. Um, and, uh, of course, with honeybees, the important thing to do is remove the sting as quickly as possible to minimise the amount of venom injected. Yes, yeah, so listeners, there's a little sack that'll be pulled out of the bee that's kind of on top. Now, if you grab that and you squeeze it, it'll squeeze in more of the stinging toxin i guess into your skin so try and get that out before you keep going on with your day that's right that's right and i think that's what happened to me last time i got uh stung uh and swelled up quite a bit it was actually the following day i ended up swelling up but i got stung uh with a motorbike helmet on and right uh above the eye and so I had to try and get the helmet off and the sting out I couldn't get the sting out with the helmet on so then I took it off and I it's kind of squeezed a bit in and it wasn't a good time at all um so that was uh that was an interesting one that's that's good that the most dangerous thing for a, on a motorbike is the bee sting so I think that's <laughs> I, all in all walking away kind of positive <laughs> well that's right I was able to safely park before yeah. uh, before I had to uh to get the helmet off there um, so yeah, so they're two on the uh, the pain scale here. Uh, the other one that I hadn't heard of before, I'm not sure whether you had Andy, which is also two on the pain scale, is the assassin bug. It's got the, one of the coolest names of a bug. <laughs> I I haven't heard of it. <laughs> That's right. It's it's a woodlands uh, woodlands bug uh, found around Australia. Um, but the sting is about a mid-range type sting. Uh, when they're biting, assassin bugs are jamming their proboscis, so the extended nose, into the skin, and they inject some nasty saliva that it causes intense pain. Uh, but they do only uh, bite when provoked, so generally just when they're entangled in clothing or that sort of thing. Um, but let's jump up the scale now to something that uh, that you may have found at a picnic here, Eddie, is the uh, bull ant. I hate bull ants. <laughs> Even seeing them just gives me that little twinge of fear. Definitely. I, it is the thing you avoid uh, when you see them. Two and a half on the pain scale. Fair so enough, yeah. Step up from bees. Um, and, you know, they're, they're pretty, pretty uh, venomous ants. They're among the most potent insects in the world uh, with their, their ant sting. Uh, and many people actually suffer from anaphylactic reactions if they're particularly sensitive to the sting. Uh, and bull ants have even been responsible for human deaths in the past. I did not know uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So as, I, as if Australia didn't already have enough uh, insects and animals trying to kill them. Bull ants as well, that's 
frustrating. <laughs> well, definitely, definitely. And I suppose there, um, uh, the other thing with ants too is normally when there's one, there's many. So that's where you can get into trouble there. Uh, but let's start stepping up this scale here to go to a big three. Uh, and number three on the uh, pain rating scale is the paper wasp. I don't think I've seen a paper wasp. Uh, they're widespread in Australia, but again, uh, generally only start stinging when their nest is disturbed. Um, so they deliver a pretty painful sting. Uh, caustic and burning, uh, lasted with a pain duration of up to 15 minutes. These bad boys got the three on the scale. Um, the sting was described as caustic and burning, uh, kind of like spilling a beaker of hydrochloric acid on a paper cut. That sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I, I've had my own experiences with hydrochloric acid and <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to deal with that again. So no, no and especially not on a paper cut. So, yeah. yeah, that's getting right up there in the pain scale. But we do have a four. Um, on the pain scale, and these creatures are pretty hardcore. Found in urban areas, forests, and wetlands throughout Australia, these creatures often drag huntsman spiders to their nest to eat. Whoa. Yeah, they're known as the spider wasp. Um, and so they're kind of an amazing creature um, in their own right, in as much as they... Uh, they bring uh, huntsman spiders to their nest to feed their larvae. So they will uh, sting the uh, huntsman and paralyze it. Uh, they'll dig a little hole, bury the huntsman spider, and, uh, and then lay their eggs in there so that when the larvae finally hatch, they can eat the beautifully preserved uh, huntsman spider there. Uh, so kind of amazing creatures. And you can occasionally spot them uh, if you're lucky. I know a friend of mine has spotted them, uh, spotted one in his backyard. He followed this, this spider wasp. What he thought was actually going to be a showdown because he saw the huntsman and the wasp looking at each other, but he hadn't realised that the wasp had already stung the huntsman. And so it was just paralysed there on its web and just dragged it so away. he's already taking bets on like this amazing showdown and doesn't realise the show's already over. That's <laughs> right. He, he, missed, he missed the good part, um, but then managed to see the, the spider was kind of rooster tailing with the the dirt coming out yeah. behind it um and uh, and buried it the huntsman away with its larvae there are some other wasps I, and like i'm forgiving you listener i won't be able to name the species that i know will infect kind of uh they'll do the same kind of sting paralyzing the spider but then just lay its eggs inside its abdomen and then let the spider live so the spider's still going the eggs hatch and slowly eat the spider from the inside and the spider only really dies when the larvae pupates enough and turns into the full-grown insect and then breaks free from the spider's mm. abdomen. Quite gory, but, you know, these mothers are really, really thoughtful and they're looking after <laughs> their young. It is, look, it's good to have something for the young, I guess, to, um, to have to go on with. But, my God, yeah, what a horrible way to go, um, to have that you know, from the inside. But, yeah, the, the spider wasp's doing a similar thing. The sting from it, um, it's... Uh, it's it's quite horrible. Um, and while Schmidt hasn't been stung by one of these spider wasps particularly, because they're an Australian creature, um, the tarantula hawk, which is a member of the same family as the spider wasp, was awarded that 4.0 by Schmidt, who, as, as we said earlier, this one was the one that was specifically likened to a running hairdryer being dropped in the bubble bath. Uh, so that's where that description comes from. 
uh, look, we do have some bad creatures in here. We don't have the, the creature that's rated highest on the Schmidt Pain Index. Oh, thanks, I guess. Yeah, luckily, <laughs> luckily. Um, that is the Bullet Ant, a native of uh, Central and South America, which gets the 4-plus rating. Um, so I don't think the rating scale extends past the 4, but this one does go past that 4.0 there. Does he describe what it feels like? No, I don't have that one specifically, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I can imagine if uh, if one's like a you know giant electric shock, this one might be extending that, and uh, you know might sort of be that pain that you wish uh, you wish you weren't in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that um, the, those kind of pain scales are really really informative, just to let people know. But they're, they're not the most scientific kind of way that you can do it. There's no like one toxin that you measure the amount that's going in, or you, there's no kind of one thing. This is kind of just a, a range that is kind of like a, a good rule of thumb for scientists to use. Yeah. Well, and it's all relative too. Pain is pain is quite uh, personal. Some people feel it more than others. Some people feel pains in different way to others. Um, I know I have the, the strange sensation of uh, pain-wise, well, certainly personally, when I donate blood, I find myself more scared and worried about the prick they give in your finger to test beforehand than the actual giving blood part. That hurts longer afterwards. That's fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a strange one because it's a small prick compared to a needle sitting in you for five minutes. But uh, oh, uh, the needle sitting in you for a while. I, I give plasma and platelets, so you end up sitting there for an, an hour, an hour and a half, and you just like it starts. It's it feels brutal. Like it feels like oh, there's like metal breaking my skin, and it's weird. But it's it it doesn't worry me as much as the I'll, I'll psych myself up for the, <laughs> the the prick on the side of the finger. If they go too much in front of the f- finger, um, I get really annoyed because it's like ah, oh, that's I got to use that later. That's <laughs> that's frustrating. And I I complain about this, but my um my I guess brother-in-law, my sister's partner is is diabetic, so he pricks himself all the time. So when mm. I complain about it, he just looks at me and goes, "What do you what do you?" talking stop complaining and uh, yeah so pain is definitely relative yeah well i suppose it's a, it's a pain uh, that you probably get used to as yeah. well over time uh, when you're pricking yourself quite regularly but uh, uh look I, I can understand you feeling like it's brutal yeah. in there uh, speaking of brutal, you were talking about an insect earlier that does sound like it's uh, got a brutal way of dealing with its predators, but it's it's kind of in a uh, a buggy bug type world out there. Exactly. Do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah. So I, I should probably start off this story, and we're talking about Japanese insects. And now in Japan, they have the a giant species of wasp called the Japanese hornet or Vespa mari. Maridarina japonica, which is a, just a giant wasp or hornet. Now, if you um, if you can look up this up online, you'll see that they're they're probably nearly an inch and a half or two inches long. These giant hornets, and they they go in like hive or colonies of about thirty or forty. Now, one of these groups of thirty or forty hornets can take out a whole honey bee hive of about 30,000. They will just go through and eat it all, then steal the honey, and then lay their eggs in there. So Japanese honeybees have had to develop lots and lots of defenses to try and deal with these. And the one that I, I got to... Uh, that was just recently um, reported on uh, earlier in February was they have a dance. Now, bees do this cool thing. There's a way to communicate. They do a really cool figure-of-eight dance where they kind of vibrate at different times, shake different parts of their body, and they can tell the bees around them different things. It might tell them, hey, there's a cool amount of nectar over here. Go over there, and here's the direction. 
Um, or there's, okay, we've got some water over here, This we can use that, and lots of different things that they can tell the, the surrounding bees. Now, these Japanese honeybees can tell other bees when there's a wasp nearby. So they say, we've found one of these scout wa- uh, hornets or wasps. We need to start defending this hive. So it basically tells other bees to go find noxious ants, uh, noxious, um, noxious uh, plants. So they might go find some all different types of um, all different types of uh, plants. I'm trying to find the plant name right here. Uh, it's frustrating me. Um, just co- odorous plants, materials, um, really badly smelling things. The Nepalese smartweed, which is um, really kind of gross smelling, and it kind of keeps the wasps away. And so they don't have to worry about defending their nest on the wasps. The wasps can go find some European bees and just completely destroy the nest. The Japanese bees also have another defense, which is really cool, and it's kind of horrifying if you really think about it. So if a hornet does get too close to the nest, and uh, to the hive the workers will then just start flooding the hornet and just grab on and hold on for as long as they can. And when there's enough around the hornet, they'll slowly start increasing their body temperatures. Warmer and warmer and warmer till the bee, uh, till the hornet and some of the bees around it are just cooked. When it kills the scout, the scout isn't able to report to the rest of the big giant Japanese hornet colony that this is where the bees are and they get to live another day. It's quite a horrifying way to do it, but it just deals with it. Whereas European bees in Japan get wiped out, like a whole hive will get wiped out all the time just because they have no defenses to these Japanese hornets that are just huge. My gosh, but it's an interesting um, little analogy there too. That you know the power of many over you know these many tiny little bees yeah. over the giant hornet, uh, just taking control and, and fighting back. And there, this is another example of what we we're talking about earlier, where some of the bees will sacrifice themselves to mm. allow the rest of the colony to live. So those ones that are right on the hornet, they're still getting cooked as well, like the hornet yeah. is, and the, the eventually they die too. But Again, they were the first ones to hold down the hornet so they could get this attack going. So, it's, again, they're looking after the, their genes with the rest of the hive. That would be such a strange thing to see as well. This, you know, this mass of bees as they they start, um, you know, crowding around yeah. the, the one hornet there. Just the... Yeah, this was a relatively recent kind of discovery. I say relatively recent. It was discovered in the nineties that this was the the defense mechanism that they use, and it's it's quite amazing, and it means that. Scientists have been able to film it, so you can go onto YouTube, listener, and go look at some of these amazing adaptations. And yeah, you can see the thermal defense. You can also see what happens when they fail, and the hornets wiping out a hive of about thirty thousand bees. Wow. So that's quite horrifying as well. Yeah. Um, well, we might have to share that uh, video on our Facebook page. We uh, share it on the Facebook. Probably share it on Twitter as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Jump on there if you haven't found us on social media. Check out Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Uh, look for the autumn leaf. Uh, yeah, Fuzzy Logic on Facebook or at Fuzzy Logic Sci. That's S C I on Twitter, and uh, you can keep up with uh, all our stories there. Earlier in the story, you were talking about uh, using smell to put off the hornets by uh, the bees getting those noxious weeds there. And it's interesting how many insects do use smell in different ways. Uh, There's the uh, stinky corpse flower, uh, which comes mainly through uh, Indonesia and that sort of region, and Malaysia, uh, Amorphophallus titanum. Uh, and it's a giant flower. It's one of these flowers that only flowers once a year, or one, no, once every five years generally. And I was lucky enough to catch one in uh, Mount Lofty Botanic Gardens in South Australia a couple of years ago. And 
I was there later in the day after it flowered, um, but when it flowered that morning, I had a chat to the horticulturalist there and he said the smell almost knocked him out when he opened up the greenhouse because he'd, he'd closed up the greenhouse the night before. He, they knew it was about to flower, but didn't quite know when. And when he opened up this morning, it had flowered. The, the outer layers had peeled back to reveal this beautiful giant flower which is you know a meter meter and a half tall um but the smell almost knocked him out and he said he just had to open the door and walk away for about half an hour uh, before they could walk inside there but the reason it has such a horrible smell is is not to put off insects but to actually attract them um so flies tend to pollinate this plant uh and so to uh, attract the flies they create this death corpse-like smell that's supposed to smell like rotting flesh and bring all the flies from all around the place together. Uh, so it's amazing the way smell feeds into uh, what many different insects do. Yeah, um, that sounds horrible and I probably would have avoided that botanic gardens for a week or two afterwards. <laughs> Did you catch much of the smell in the afternoon? No, no, oh. it was it was almost all gone, which is kind of unfortunate, really. I was kind of, I, I was a little disappointed. I got to see the giant flower, which was amazing, but no, the smell, the smell had dissipated pretty quickly and I think that's generally what happens, you know, it flowers and it's, you can only see the flower for a day or two and then it just disappears and uh and you'd have to wait another five years for it to happen again. Yeah, I'd probably just leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, look, I, I totally understand that there. Uh, we're going to continue into the world of insects, maybe into a, a little bit uh, nicer world rather than smelly corpse flowers. We're going to get into insects you can eat uh, after the break. But for now, let's have another bit of music. Yeah, I want to do right for now. And that was Miss uh, Look at Miss Ohio by April May. It's a beautiful Gillian Welch cover, and I'm a big fan of the original, but that song does it just as much justice. So you're listening to 2XX in Canberra, that's People Powered Radio, and you've luckily enough to catch us in the last 10 minutes of Fuzzy Logic, the local science show. And we're talking about all things insects, or entomology today. And next we're going to be talking about some insects that you can kind of eat. And you've got a cool story about some new ones that we can eat now as well, don't you, Brad? I do, I do. It's uh, the green ant, which uh, traditionally known as guguk uh, by the indigenous people. They've been eating it for years. Oh, it's pretty good, actually. I've you, tasted you've it as tried well. One. Yeah, I haven't was... tried one on its own. What's yeah, it like, it's Andy? It's kind of sweet and nice. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it's small, so you kind of have to eat a lot. But it's almost yeah, it's it's you could almost have it like a little crunchy dessert. Like it's it's really good. I I recommend them if if you get someone to show you how to eat them and and, and what to do. It's it's really good. Yeah, they're found up in northern Australia mainly, um, and they've been used uh, by indigenous groups for medicinal benefits and protein content as as well as just tasting nice because um, they've got this uh, green little uh, sack in the, the abdomen there, and so you can kind of eat that off. And the flavour, supposedly like a citrus punch, you know, lime with a hint of coriander. And the other thing too, when you bite into it, I don't know if you felt this, Andy, but it's kind of like popping candy. Yeah, the, it the kind of like fizzes and bursts, and it's it's really nice. I almost think you could probably use it in some Southeast Asian food as well, that kind of limey, coriandery kind of flavour. It'd be, go really well some some Thai food, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, people can use it. People are starting to use it more 
more and more. Desserts, salads, meat marinades as a cocktail garnish, mm-hmm. even. Um, uh, but the one of the latest incarnations is in gin. Uh, so this is a, a green ant gin uh, that's uh, being produced in South Australia, and it's uh, Adelaide Hills Distillery uh, working with a, a local group called uh, uh, Oh, I've just lost it. Wild. Uh, no, it's disappeared. Uh, the business is uh, run something wild. There we are. I knew I had wild in it. Uh, business is run by a couple of indigenous guys who AFL fans might know through their work with Port Power, uh, Shannon and Daniel Motlop. Uh, who both played AFL, but now they've gone uh, to create their own business to collect uh, indigenous foods uh, that have been used uh, for many, many years and and bringing them to to become a a bit more uh, well-known to to the general public. And so they've been collecting uh, these green ants and uh, giving them to the Adelaide Hills Distillery, not giving them, selling them to Adelaide Hills Distillery and working with them to create this green ant gin. It's quite an interesting little creature. Uh, when they, they collect them, they do try occasionally get bitten. It packs a bit of a punch when they get bitten by them. Do we know what their scale is? I, I don't have them on our scale. I'd say I'd probably a one or a two on yeah. there. Uh, and generally when you do get bitten, you get bitten by about 10 or 20 of them. But, you know, that pain probably pays off because they're being sold at $650 a kilo. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, ants are pretty small. Yeah, so that's I'll, a lot of ants give that them take that. a while to collect, I guess. That's right, that's right. Um, I think we should farm them. That's, that's, that's a lot per kilo. Like, that's a decent commodity right there. It is, it is. Um, and it's kind of an interesting uh, transition from, you know, the Motlops have said as kids going out bush, <laughs> they used to mess around, taste a few, bite their backsides off. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, get that little hit. Uh, but now it's turned into a commercial food industry. Uh, and so they've, they've added them to this green ant gin, which is a wonderful gin. I got a bottle for Christmas from my girlfriend, and uh, it's just a really nice gin. But my favourite part of it is that uh, they they use it through, through the distilling process. And obviously when it goes through the still, they filter out all the botanicals that they put in there. Uh, so you get the really nice lime coriander flavour through that. But they also put three little ants in the bottom of the bottle nice, as well. Good tequila. That's <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you can see them there as you drink through. And, uh, you know, if you get... I'm, I haven't reached the end of the bottle yet. I'm, I'm slowly pacing myself. But when I get to the end, I might be able to give them a little... Uh, a munch. Munch <laughs> and uh, get that little zing through there. Um, does the gin taste like the lime and coriander flavours that we were talking about before? It, it does, it oh. does. It's certainly got those flavours through there. I mean, they do use other uh, native botanicals in there, and I, I think the uh, the finger limes are part of that. Nice. Um, so it does have those flavours, but certainly I, I find it a really nice, uh, sweeter type gin. Do you drink uh, it straight? Sorry, uh, 2XX, we do not condone drinking too much alcohol. Just a responsible <laughs> amount. But... Um, do you drink it straight or do you drink it just some soda water and it kind of... Uh, t- tonic, generally, yeah, yeah. Okay. so I, I do have it as a gin and tonic. Nice. Um, but yeah, and just I, I'm enjoying it. It's quite nice, but yeah, it's not a cheap gin either, so I, I am taking my time with this one. Um, but the other place you can find uh, these green ants, if you're not such a gin fan, is on cheese. Uh, and again, happening over in Adelaide, uh, South Australian uh, cheesemaker Chris Lloyd is uh, doing insect encrusted uh, chevre, so goat's cheese, the soft goat's cheese, and putting uh, the green ants on the outside. 
That sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because I've eaten the green ants and I really like the flavour. You can, yeah, a nice chevreau, just like on a cracker and some nice Adelaide Hills white wine. That'd be really lovely. It would, it would. And the, the interesting thing I find is that, you know, normally when you get ants on your cheese, you've got a bad time. But uh, <laughs> the, the cheese maker has purposely put the whole ants on there, on the outside, as like a crust. And uh, what it ends up creating is... Uh, those flavours of lime and a bit almost lemongrass in there uh, with the, the insects themselves, which kind of explode in your mouth. And the acidity from the insect also cuts through the fat in the cheese. And so it balances out nicely. Uh, not cheap, the cheese. $350 a kilo. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's... it's uh, but it's well worth it. It did win uh, the Super Gold Award at the World Cheese Awards last year, beating more than 3,000 other entries. Fantastic. Uh, so pretty amazing cheese there. So there you go. Insects uh, not only uh, doing things around our world, but good to eat as well. And that is a thing that I think maybe we should all... Those of you who do eat animals still, I'm, I must confess I'm a vegetarian, but... It, maybe open yourself up to eating some of those different protein sources. So if you eat, want to eat some more insects and things like that, I know in Southeast Asia it is, is quite a staple part of many diets and it's a lot, rather sustainable form of protein as well. So you can eat as many insects and they grow really quickly. So you're getting the protein that you need, but you're also getting something that's nice and crunchy. Just got to get past that first barrier of insect, which is hard for some people. That's right. What I find in Southeast Asian cultures and that sort of thing, uh, you know, you're often presented with the insect as a whole, uh, whereas some of the more recent uh, versions of insects I've seen in Australia have been presented as part of a meal. And so, for example, in um, I had a, a brownie recently that had uh, mealworms in it, and they were crunchy mealworms, and they were designed to kind of replace the walnutty uh, crunch that you, you often get in brownies, and it worked quite well. Nice. Uh, you know, I, my mum almost tasted it without realising there were insects in it. Uh, <laughs> she just thought it was another wonderful tasting at this event. <laughs> um, but uh, but I thought it was a really nice way, and I think that's probably how we need to look at it. But I think too often we look at tasting insects on their own. Yeah. Uh, but when you include them as part of something, it, it seems to you know fill in quite nicely yeah and uh, even then if you can taste on its own and get through that it's nice i remember as a kid eating bogon moths just because that was what we did at school they would have them there available for us and fry them up in peanut oil they taste like peanut butter they're fantastic um so if you can get past that initial eating insects thing and and see what you can have you can open up a world of sustainable proteins for you yeah, and so was that locally that you were yeah, eating the Bogon moss? Yeah, yeah. so Bogon moss, I, I don't know if they do it much anymore. They used to do that massive migration from up north down into the hills um, in the in the Namaji National Park. Um, I think listeners will remember the moths that used to, that kind of flooded the Sydney Olympics in 2000. They, they were the same Bogon moths, but usually they're supposed to go rather a lot further south yeah. and uh, and then... Indigenous people would eat them a lot, and then local people around Canberra still occasionally eat them. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of local Canberras, Canberrans eating insects, there is a group that we've talked about on Fuzzy before, GoTerra, if you haven't heard of them, uh, who are a, a livestock feed company. And so they're using insects to feed livestock um, because that's another big thing. You know, the the meat that we eat from chicken, pigs, beef, uh, that we have to grow wheat uh, to feed those animals and uh, we have to 
grow crops and you know those crops are becoming harder and harder to grow and we need them for humans uh, so goTerra is doing uh, using insects to feed uh, the the livestock to keep them going as a, as a protein source which is another interesting way to look at how we can use insects as a uh, as a food source yeah fantastic yeah so there we are so that's insects as food to wrap up our insect show right here on Fuzzy Logic. If you did enjoy today's show, listeners, you can find us online at fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com. But uh, thanks very much for joining us in the studio, Andy. Thank you, Brad. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to uh, Fuzzy Logic. This has been another episode. Tune in same time next week for your science on a Sunday.